fact, during World War II, uh, the Nazis were determined to exterminate the Jewish people in Europe. And um, since 1944, the year before the war ended, a lot of what was taking place to the Jews in Europe had not gotten out. But when the Nazis began to work over the Jewish population in Hungary, there were a number of reports that did filter out from the country, made their way to the Allies. And as uh, the, uh, President Roosevelt was reading these reports and made their ways to the U.S., uh, they had, we had something in the U.S. called a War Refugee Board at that point. They contacted Sweden. Sweden was a neutral country during World War II and asked them if they had somebody that could go into Hungary under diplomatic cover, Sweden's neutral diplomatic cover, and try to mount a rescue operation of the Jewish people there in Budapest and elsewhere. Uh, total numbers of Jews in Hungary at that point were a little over 800,000. Adolf Eichmann had been brought into Hungary. Um, hun Hungary was an ally of Nazi Germany, and then under pressure from um, numerous parts of the world, Hungary was, was starting to back out of that alliance. Toward, they saw the handwriting on the wall that the war was going to end with a loss to, to the Germans. And so German, uh, Germany marched into Hungary and placed their puppet leader there. And uh, they were determined to eradicate all of the Jews within six months in Hungary. And Eichmann was uh, tasked to kind of perform this part of the final solution. And so he was, he was moving out Jews at, at a rate of thousands a day. They had trains set up. They would march uh, Jews into the trains, and they would ship them off uh, to Auschwitz later on and some other death camps as well. Later on, they were actually, they didn't want to waste the uh, fuel and so forth for trains, and they were actually marching Jews to the Austrian border, which was a march of 120 miles. And as you can imagine, they weren't feeding them and so forth, and people were dropping like flies along the way. And so Sweden heard, uh, heard the... Americans plea, and they eventually landed on a young man, 32-year-old man by the name of Raoul Wallenberg. He was connected to one of the most uh, prominent families in, in uh, Sweden. His family was involved in uh, banking industries, actually a number of businesses that were doing business with uh, the Nazis. Uh, for some reason, people thought that this uh, architect slash banker could, could go into uh, Budapest and, and save some people. Uh, he spoke German fluently. He had been to Hungary many times. Uh, he knew his way around the place. And when they talked to him about what it would look like to try to rescue these people, he was like instantly in. In fact, um, he, he went virtually overnight from the asking of or this assignment into Hungary. And he began to print up passes with the official colors and stamps of the uh, Swedish government and began handing them out to people. He bought 32 buildings in Budapest and began rescuing Jews and moving them into those buildings. He'd have the Swedish flag hanging over the building, and he'd call it the Swedish library or the Swedish hospital or the Swedish something else. And over a period of about six months, he was housing 15 to 20,000 Jews in these buildings under the neutral flag of Sweden. He had gone to Hungary with a, a budget of about 200000 and he had specifically asked the Swedish government if he could use that for whatever, including bribing 
Nazi officials. Well, that wasn't the way Swedes normally did things, but they eventually agreed to do that. And this man proved to be just a, a juggernaut of determination to save as many as he possibly could. He would meet with, uh, including guys like Eichmann, he would meet with Nazi officials, and if flattery didn't work, he would bribe them. If bribery didn't work, he would uh, intimidate them. He would actually threaten them. And for his trouble over the years, he had, uh, not over the years, he was only there about uh, six months, he had a number of Nazis uh, pull a gun on him. He had his car run into on the streets of uh, Budapest by military, uh, um, military trucks and cars. Um, he was uh, threatened uh, verbally that they were going to kill him or they were going to spirit him away and put him in a concentration camp. Over a period of these months, though, he is credited with rescuing somewhere between 30,000 and 100,000 Jews. As the Russian Red Army approached from the east and it was clear that the Nazis were going to lose, he looked at the bombardments taking place out his window. He could see the artillery shells and so forth. And he, he believed that when the, the uh, Soviets got there, that his job would be over, he wouldn't need to rescue any more Jews, and that they, they would be rescuing the Jewish people and him. Instead, when they got there, the Red Army proved to be every bit as bad as the Nazi army, and in some cases worse. They raped and pillaged their way through the civilian population, spiriting many, many people off to the concentration camps of the Soviet Gulag. And one of the people they arrested and sent back to Moscow was a young man by the name of Raoul Wallenberg. Part of the problem was he spoke German so fluently that they suspected he was a German spy. Plus, he had this personal little book of all the contacts that he had uh, of people, uh, Hungarians as well as Germans. And in that little book was uh, uh, the name of Adolf Eichmann and his phone number, other Nazi officials, and so forth. We don't know what happened to Raoul. We know that prisoners coming out of the Soviet prisons over the subsequent years had him in uh, the prisons at least up until 1947. But nobody really knows for sure what happened to him. He was only officially declared dead by the Swedish government just last year. His stepfather and his mother eventually took their lives at the end of long, arduous years trying to find out what happened to their son. If you go to the Holocaust Museum today in Jerusalem, Yad Vashem, there's a, a trail around the perimeter of the campus there called the Avenue of the Righteous. And there's a garden there that celebrates the righteous among the nations. These are Gentiles, in most cases Christians, who went to bat for the Jewish people during the Holocaust. And you'll find the name there of Raoul Wallenberg and many trees planted in his memory. And you would ask yourself, why would the man, a man who had all the money that he needed go to a place like this for people that weren't like him? Raoul was a Swedish Lutheran. These were Jews. Raoul was a wealthy businessman. He didn't need to go into a place like Hungary in the middle of war and risk his life and everything, his freedom. And yet these are exactly the kinds of things that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the God the Father who sent his one and only son for people like us calls out for us to do.
Listen to the story of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, beginning of verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this was a question Jesus was asked on a number of occasions, which indicates that Jesus wasn't only teaching when he was in the synagogues or out in the streets or on the mountainsides about how we should live today, but they were clearly getting the message that he was speaking about a life eternal, this life on into the next. What should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus was a better Socratic teacher than Socrates was, and so instead of always answering questions, he usually asked another question to help teach, and he did this time as well. What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Now, this was a, this was a theologian that he's talking to, knew the word, Scriptures inside out, upside down, and backwards. And the man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. You do this, and you will live. Now, the man wanted to justify his actions. Now, we're getting the picture here that this, this, man, this man's objective is not necessarily noble. Um, he, he, he was looking to kind of trap Jesus, he's testing him, and now he wants to justify his actions. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who's included in that category? And Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road, and he passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. And then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. <clears throat> Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man, and if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Father God, pray for the power of the Holy Spirit this morning to be unleashed, for the power of the enemy to be bound. I pray for my uh, own heart and the reservations that, that are in it, the things that get in the way of the work of your word and your spirit, <clears throat> that you would dismantle them. And I pray that for brothers and sisters here as well. And I pray that for people who might be here who don't know Christ as well. That there would be open space and room for the Word and the Spirit to operate. And we, we just want to say thank you that you are a God who, like the Samaritan, shows mercy. That you are a God who doesn't look down and say, oh, this is, the, this, this is a group of the beautiful people. This is a group of the successful people. This is a group of the smart people. And I'm going to cast my lot with them. In fact, if 
if the thumbnail sketch of the t life and times of Jesus the Messiah here on earth is any indication, you tend and trend toward the other direction. That you tend toward looking at those who have everything against them. That you, you trend t toward um, reaching out for those who have not only three but 70 strikes against them. And that those who have everything going for them often are the very ones who are left behind because they don't see their need of you. And we worship you today as a bunch of misfits, miscreants, <laughs> people who are at the wrong place, the wrong time, and people who stumble and fall and then stumble and fall again, people who far too often do as we ought not to do rather than as we ought and say how grateful we are that you are a God of mercy and a God of grace. And would you, perhaps to a bit greater extent today, make each of us boys and girls and men and women of greater mercy and grace? In Jesus' name, amen. Now Jesus asked the man, what is the, what do you think is the essence, based on the old covenant, what do you think is the essence of how you inherit eternal life? Now, to his credit, this man's a theologian. He, he knows the scriptures well. To his credit, he didn't just pick some random verse out. He picks what, what the Jews still to this day believe is part and parcel of the core of Jewish faith. He appealed, first of all, to the Shema. This is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. And if you're a part of a Jewish, Orthodox Jewish home today, you will still recite the Shema morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening. It's called the Shema because it's a Jewish word, the first Jewish word in that section. And if you go to a Jewish synagogue here in the county um, on a Shabbat Eve service, you'll hear this line, these lines again repeated in, in the synagogue. Shema Israel, uh, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now the very next line, verse 5, is where this theologian pulled his argument of who does, or what we do to inherit eternal life. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then he didn't go on to verse 6 to say this is the kind of sum total or, or the 6, 7, 8, and 9. But he jumped over to Leviticus 19 and says this is connected with this somehow very intrinsically. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Now it's interesting that when Jesus was, uh, Jesus was asked a question, uh, what's the greatest commandment? He gave the very same answer as this theologian this day. People would ask him, what's the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this man, as I said, didn't really have apparently noble motives. He was, he was um, um, testing Jesus to see if he could catch him in a logical inconsistency or, or have him say something that didn't, um, didn't agree with something he had said earlier. And there were a lot of these religious specialists who were always looking to trip, trip Jesus up. And so after he gives the answer, Jesus approves of his answer. He says, you, you've said right. You, it's all about love, right? It's all about love, love, all love, all the time. Love for God, love for people. 
But now the man's thinking to himself. Now Jesus has approved it. I, I'm suspecting that he, he thought that maybe Jesus would say, no, that's not the right answer. Give him something else. But now that he's stuck with his Jewish um, gospel, so to speak, he's thinking to himself, wait a minute. Um, I'm loving my neighbor as myself. Shoot. I have this Gentile neighbor up the street. And, and I have this neighbor uh, up the street that is, and his daughter is living in the streets and working the streets. And, and then I have a neighbor up here that's uh, gone over to the Romans. He's a tax collector. If, 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 I've got to find a way to narrow down this category of neighbor. And so the text says he tries to justify himself. So he says to Jesus, who really is my neighbor? Who really is my neighbor? And if you and I were in that conversation with Jesus, who is it that you're thinking about? I really don't want to have that person in this category of neighbor that I have to love like myself. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? Jesus, the, the text doesn't say, and I should love that person as I love the person that I like the most or people that I really get along with. Why? Because we take care of ourselves and we love ourselves and we feed ourselves and we clothe ourselves and we buy what we need for ourselves. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus tells a story. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was not a straight line. It wasn't a, um, a, a flat line. It was a curved road with ups and downs. It was a perfect place for ambush. Bandits could hide there, attack someone, get their belongings, be on their way before anyone has any idea what's take place because, because of the change in the um, the topography, people up the road a mile wouldn't see what was happening and so forth. And so a man's going down the road and he's, <coughs> excuse me, attacked by bandits. They take all of his goods. They take all of his belongings. Perhaps he was walking, but maybe he had a donkey. That's gone. His clothes are gone. We don't know if he's naked or almost naked. We know he just doesn't have anything to go on. He doesn't have anything to live on and he's apparently almost dead. Maybe unconscious. And along comes a uh, uh, a man, a priest. This is a religious um, leader, a synagogue. Maybe we can say today he'd be a senior pastor or something. And he sees the man there. Maybe he's from the other side of the road because it doesn't appear like he walked across the road, looked at him. He sees him laying there. Maybe he thinks he's dead. M maybe um, he thinks like I do sometimes when I go by somebody stranded along the road <clears throat> and I, I see them, they got their hood up and so forth, and I think, I'm not going to stop because I wouldn't know what to do under the hood anyway. You ever do that? You think, I'm not going to be really any, of any help to them anyhow, so I kind of keep on going. And so he's, maybe the priest is thinking, well, I'm not a doctor. I can't help him. Off he goes. Maybe he had a meeting he had to be at. Maybe he thought the guy was dead, and after all, if he'd touch a dead body, that would mean he was unclean for a period of time and couldn't do his normal duties down at the temple. For whatever reason, he kept going. I, <clears throat> I was thinking this week, <clears throat> I wonder if the man that was injured was actually conscious. He couldn't move. He was so badly injured, he couldn't move, but he was conscious. 
and he could see this man across the road glance at him and then keep going. And he's unable to speak because he's so badly injured, and yet his mind is trying to shriek out, Wait! Come back! Help! I, I need ha- even just a drink. Of, could you just give me a drink of water? Another man comes along. This is a Levite. Uh, this is a guy. There were hundreds of them that worked at the temple from the line of Levi. Their responsibilities were to keep uh, things ship-shaped, to clean the utensils that were used in the sacrificial system and so forth. Might have been, we maybe think of him as an associate, associate pastor, an assistant pastor. The text tells us that at the very least he walked across the road to look at the guy. But he moves on as well. Maybe he had a business appointment. Maybe he didn't know how he could heal the guy. He's not a doctor. Maybe he didn't want to be unclean for a period of time and not be able to carry out his duties at the temple. Who knows? Maybe he just didn't want to be bothered. And so he keeps going as well. And again, I'm imagining this poor uh, crime victim laying there thinking, wait, come back. You might be my last hope. It might be getting toward dark and nobody's going to come along until morning. Anything you could do would be helpful. Even could you just bring your robe and put it over me so I'm not laying here like this. Now Jesus said at the beginning of the story, this is a Jewish man. And so no doubt the theologian was surprised about the next person that came along and his reaction. He's a Samaritan. Now we've talked many times about the hostility between Samaritans and Jews. Ethnically, same root. Religiously, same root. Historically, different root. The kingdom of Israel broke up after Solomon into two parts, southern kingdom, northern kingdom. The southern kingdom was called the kingdom of Judah, eventually still Israel. The northern kingdom was Israel. And there, was, there were tensions between them, tensions that were born out of their history before they became subject to uh, conquering powers as well as after they became subject to conquering powers. Because the two kingdoms separated, and Jerusalem was supposed to be the place where if you were a serious Jew, that's where you did all your religious stuff. That's where you offered your sacrifices. That's where you went for your feast days, the religious holidays. When the kingdom split, the northern kingdom, the Samaritans said, well, we can't have our people going down to Jerusalem. And so they set up their own place of worship, a Mount Gerizim. They made a temple there. They, they had their own line of priests. And according to Jewish law, the priests were only supposed to come through the line of Aaron. Well, the Aaron Aaronites were all down south. So you had a different place of worship. You had a different priesthood. Um, you just had a lot of different history there. And then after the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria, Assyria did uh, a very, made a very shrewd move. They mixed up their conquered peoples. They had them live next to each other instead of all the Babylonians at one spot and all the Jews at one spot and all the Egyptians at one spot. Because if you do that, then these people groups can conspire and eventually could form a revolution. But if you mix them up, 
different cultural blocks, that's not as likely to happen. And subsequent generations are going to start intermarrying, and that's exactly what happened in Samaria. And the Jews in the south looked at the Samaritans in the north and said, you are, you, you're infidels because you have intermarried with Gentiles. And along comes this Samaritan on the road to Jericho, and for the first time, a man who would be despised by the man lying on the ground cares about him. Verse 33 says he, was, he felt compassion. This is a man whose, whose people are at odds with the victim's people. But it says he, he had compassion for him. He felt compassion for him. And so he gets his medicine out. In those days, that means uh, wine and olive oil. And he bandages the man's wounds up. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to an inn. He pays the innkeeper to doctor him for a subsequent period of time. He says, look, if it costs more than that, I'll be back through here in several weeks and I'll pay you. Just give me a bill and I'll pay you whatever it costs. And Jesus asks the man, so which do you think was a neighbor to him? Ooh, isn't that interesting? What was the man's question to Jesus? Who is my neighbor? And now Jesus is asking the man, he's putting the shoe on the other foot and said, okay, who was a neighbor to the man in need? Well, the one who had mercy on him. You go and do that as well. And I want, you to, I, I want you to not miss the link, the connection here about where this started. What's the summation of the law, i.e., what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Love God and love people. Love God and love people. Now, we as New Testament Christians know that the New Testament is chock full of admonitions to love Love, 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 love. In fact, some apostates who give up the gospel in, in the churches today, and we're certainly seeing that in a variety of places, say the essence of the gospel is love. There's, there's some truth to that. But what does love mean? If I say that I love you, does that simply mean I have a warm regard for you in my heart? but I will walk past you when you're in need and keep on going. And let's just stay with loving God. I say, I love you, God, but I live in willful rebellion against your call in my life. Have you ever had something that you knew you couldn't necessarily explain to somebody else why you knew, but you knew in your heart that God wanted you to do, and you refused. Has there been a time in your life where maybe it's not some specific um, course of action that God has for you, but just as you read the Word of God, and you read something, and you're like, ooh, wow, I don't know if I ever saw that before. Man, that's asking a lot, God. But you would continue to say to people, I love the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength, and yet knowingly I live in rebellion in this area of my life. And what Jesus is trying to do here 
The man is looking for deeds to do to pass muster. And Jesus says that the deeds are, they come out of the love. And if the love's not authentic, neither will the deeds be. That's true of whether you're talking about loving God or talking about the love you have for people because you have a love for God. I don't know about you, but when I read the Good Samaritan story, I'm like, I think I see myself more in the priest and the Levite than I would ever want to admit. The Greek word for neighbor speaks about proximity. I, I'm, I'm close to that person. And I have the ability to aid that person. And so I want us to think here just for a moment about us as neighbors. I want you to think about yourself as a neighbor. Think about the people that you are in proximity to, that are near to you. They may be colleagues at work. They may be classmates at school. They may be your neighbors up and down your street. They may be extended family members. And what would it look like to be the neighbor that the Samaritan was to this person that wasn't necessarily someone he would gravitate to toward normally? So how, how would it be for you to be a neighbor to the woman that sits in a cubicle next to you at work who is this perennial gossip? And you've washed your hands of her because... Frankly, you don't want to become the subject of gospel. You don't want to hear her gospel. What, gossip, but what, does it, what would it mean to be a neighbor to her? What would it mean to be a neighbor to the, the bully that sits at a desk near you in class who's flunking the course that you are acing? A guy that you could conceivably tutor. What does it mean to be a neighbor to an, ab an abusive uncle? Now, I don't mean to put yourself in a position where you can be victimized again. But maybe that uncle is getting toward the end of his life. He has nobody because he's ruined all of his relationships in life. He has nobody. What would it mean to be a neighbor to him? which by definition means to show mercy to him. What would it mean to be a neighbor to the person that you are quarreling with on Facebook? I don't know about you, but when I look at social media and I know that some of those things are written by some of us, who name the name of Christ, I go, oh my goodness. What kind of neighbors are we? Then in our declarations of our rightness, we are crucifying others made in the image of God who might be wrong. 
but they're made by him and loved by him. And his desire, even as God to be a neighbor to him, might be coming through his prod to us to be a neighbor to them. Is your friend who just started serving a six to ten year sentence for burglary? Could you be a neighbor to him? Or the Muslim family down the street that makes you nervous when you see the woman in the hijab walking up the street? We, we talk a lot here at Keystone about we are made right by, with God by faith in Christ alone. There's nothing you can add to it. You, no deeds. But we want to be careful that we don't neglect this message, and that is that conduct always flows out of convictions. That behavior always flows out of belief. And you can see that in the priest, and you can see that in the Levite, and you can see that in the Samaritan. And I want to leave you, you individually, and me individually, with the question that Jesus left this theologian. Who will you be a neighbor to? Don't worry so much about who's your neighbor out there, but who's God want you to be a neighbor to? That might be different today than it will be three weeks from now. You're in proximity to someone that's in need today. Might be different this year than it would be next, next year. What Jesus desperately wants us to do is as we meander through life, is to navigate it with our eyes wide open instead of tightly closed. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for, uh, for me and for those of us who know Christ to not only have eyesight, but to be able to see with those eyes, to see the people in our paths along the roads we navigate in the communities in which we live, businesses where we work, factories, schools we attend. The lives that we live to see just how many people you are positioning near us because you believe that we could be a neighbor to them and you believe that we will be a neighbor to them. Because, like Paul said, the gospel constrains me. I, I, I can't help but do this because of the gospel. May that be true of us as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and continue to worship. Told you my story, you were.
for just a minute. Uh, a couple of things I need to uh, correct as far as announcements. The fellowship meal next Sunday is after first and second service, so you guys won't get missed or need to hang around for an extra hour. And uh, the connections uh, group is 1035 next Sunday. But I also forgot something important. <laughs> you were hoping I forgot that completely, but I didn't fully. So we're going to try it so we can get some house lights up here a little bit, and we're going to put that verse up on the board. And uh, if you want to stand up and try it with me, we're going to have it on the screen for uh, the first time through, and then we'll try it from memory the second time through. Are you ready? I said, are you ready? <laughs> All right, Revelation 1, 5b to 6. All glory to him who freed us from our sins by shedding his blood. What's that? What's that? That's because I was trying to do it from memory. <laughs> Thought I had it down. All right, let's try it again. Revelation 1, 5b to 6. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 1, 5, B to 6. Zoop. You ready? <laughs> Revelation 1, 5, B to 6. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God, our God, his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 1, 5b, 6. This is the word of the Lord, and I still need some work. <laughs> All right, we're going to have the uh, intercessors come to the front as we close in prayer. If you'd like to have somebody pray with you, just make your way down to the front here uh, afterwards. Thanks for coming today. I hope you'll be the good Samaritan this week for the glory of God and the expression of our love for him and our love for the world that he sent us to. Father, thank you for Jesus, um, who was the ultimate neighbor, wasn't he? Wow. He left his neighborhood and came to ours and showed us great mercy, undeserved mercy and grace. Thank you for the hope that we have in him, the newness of life that we have in him, the eternal life that we have in him. And we want to be mediators of that life to others this week, whether it's by telling them about Jesus or by uh, helping them with their wounds or by listening to them or providing a meal for them or stopping and, and giving them a ride or, or by, well, just being with people that can be difficult to be with. May we be that neighbor for the glory of Christ and for the good of this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You're just